Jacob Burkhart said, It is the historian's function not to make us clever for the next time, but to make us wise forever. There's a kind of hubris about the present, that everything we do is the right way to do it, or that everything we achieve is the ultimate achievement, or that those people who preceded us weren't quite as bright as we are, or weren't quite as savvy about life and the realities of what matters. Now, that's an arrogant and ignorant view of life. There's so much we can learn from history, and there's so much we can learn from those who preceded us. If anything, we have examples from leaders from past generations. Their frustrations, squabbles, victories, and celebrations. Things that can act as a guidepost for us. And while we don't have the same situations as they did, we can draw analogies. And what's better from learning from someone else's successes or mistakes to create shortcuts for ourselves? History can't be avoided. We need to embrace it honestly and critically if we want to grow. We have to know who we were if we want to know who we are. And from there, we can forge a path for who we want to become. Have you ever admired a leader and wondered just what it is that makes her who she is? How he came to embrace the things that advanced him? Welcome to Timeless Leadership, where we look at the principles that define success. This is a show for leaders at all stages of their careers who aspire to understand what it truly means to be a leader. And who is a leader? Dolly Parton said, If your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, you are a leader. Together, we'll explore key principles, not only in the sense of fundamentals, but also in the ethical sense, the habits, character traits, and virtues that form the backbone of leadership, principles that are just as relevant and essential in the 21st century as they were in the 1st century. This is Timeless Leadership. Hello and welcome to Timeless Leadership, where we explore principles and virtues that are the backbone of great leadership. Leaders that are successful, leaders that are admirable, leaders that we aspire to become. And thanks for considering this worthy of your time. I know you have a lot of places to put your attention, and I'm grateful that you're here. We do shows like this live each week. The benefit of participating live is you get to participate in the conversation. You get to step up to the microphone, ask questions, provide input, tell your own stories, and we welcome that. If you are listening later to the recording, this is a podcast, and it's available as Timeless Leadership wherever you get podcasts. And of course, if you're not yet subscribed to my newsletter, Timeless and Timely, where I regularly write about leadership and communication, please do so at TimelessTimely.com. This week's topic, History Disrupted. Jason Steinhauer served as founding director of the LePage Center for History in the Public Interest. 
He's currently a global fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center and a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, as well as a contributor to Time and CNN, a past editorial board member of the Washington Post Made by History section, and a presidential counselor of the National World War II Museum. In 2020, he founded the History Club on Clubhouse, which he hosts regularly. The club has more than 100,000 members and averages 2,500 participants per week. In 2021, he founded the first cryptocurrency devoted to history, the Jason coin on Rally. The coin will be used to provide grants for public-facing history projects. In 2014, he coined the term history communicators and has worked with colleagues worldwide to found the new field of history communication. He's the founder and CEO of the History Communication Institute. His first book, History Disrupted, examines how history gets communicated through the World Wide Web. Jason has traveled twice overseas with the U.S. Department of State as a part of diplomatic exchanges between the United States and the European Union, meeting with government officials, scholars, and students to discuss the effects of the web and social media on public understandings of news, history, and information. He's spoken at events across the United States and Europe and appears frequently in the media. Jason, welcome to Timeless Leadership. Thank you, sir. That was a beautiful intro that you did with the music and your voice. And Man, I need to take some lessons from you. <laughs> I am available for hire if anybody needs uh, extra production in the audio area. It's something uh, I've had a little success with, but I like doing custom music for all of my guests. You know, I get the bio from you, and those are just words. I like to bring it alive with a little custom music that seems, well, thematically appropriate for what we're doing. That was the U.S. Naval Academy Band. So uh, right there in the heart of Washington, of uh, Annapolis and the Washington, D.C. area. So familiar territory to you. And appropriate because Army and Navy are playing this weekend. See, there so, you go. You have but a, my uh, wife. <laughs> my yeah. wife is in the Army. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, boy. All right. I'm not going to touch that then. <laughs> yeah. We have to, you know, when she was going through training, she had to learn the Army fight song and make sure that she sang it, you know, right words, right melody, right emphasis on certain parts of the song. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're Army people in this household. Excellent. Well, they don't kid around. So tell me, Jason, when did you first become interested in history? I have always been in the sense that I, I don't remember a time where I wasn't. And I've talked about this in other places, but my grandparents on my mother's side were Holocaust survivors. And I sort of always knew that as a kid. I don't remember being told that. I don't remember a sit-down conversation where that happened. It just was something I always knew. And so I always carried that weight with me. Um, I always felt that sense of history and also responsibility throughout my life, throughout my education, throughout my personal life. And so I think history has kind of always been a part of me. And I've said this in other places as well. When I was young, I also, you know, I'm a creative guy. And when I was young, I also used to make 
museum exhibits in my parents' basement growing up. So I'd take my action figures and you know, all the stuff we had laying around, and I'd make these little dioramas and little displays. I'd put artifact labels and exhibit text around it, and my parents would come down and take a look. So I've always kind of felt the weight and responsibility of history. At the same time, I've always looked for creative ways to express historical knowledge, and I think that's kind of been my career. That's that's amazing. Um, I could go down so many avenues there. I I was a diorama kid myself. I loved making dioramas. Just the the ability to kind of capture a a, a moment, whether it's from a book or from history, and and to freeze it in three dimensional uh, in in a three dimensional way. Um, it, and and what does it do? It tells a story, right? And that's to me what history is. It's it's a series of stories. And anybody who's interested in history, I find, or who's good at history, is a natural storyteller. And you as a history communicator, and I wanna, I wanna explore that in a little bit as well. Um, I have to imagine you were exposed to a lot of stories growing up, probably from your grandparents, from your parents as well. Can you talk a little bit about the role of storytelling in your life and in your career? It is very interesting you bring this up. And I say that because I actually have a whole chapter in my book about what I call the storytelling past. And in that book, I actually raise some concerns about conflating storytelling with history. Because certainly a good story can get you interested in history, but also a good story can be used to manipulate history and to lead you astray from what actually happened in the past. And I, we have seen examples on the web and in other spaces where good storytellers are able to exploit their storytelling skill in order to gain influence, mislead people, spread false information. So um, it's, it's very interesting to me how these two things have become conflated over the past generation or so, and I think there's a reason for that. I talk about the reason in the book. The other thing that's interesting about what you said is that in some respects, I spent my entire childhood not hearing stories because my grandparents who were survivors, my grandfather died before I was born, so I never heard his story about how he survived the war, and my grandmother refused to talk about it. She was so scarred from the experience that she never wanted to bring it up. And so we spent so many nights at the kitchen table trying to convince her to tell her story, mm. but never actually hearing it. And in fact, I wrote a piece about her life after she died in 2018 that sort of pieced together her path as best as I could. Um, but I never thought about history as being about stories. Um, Again, I come back to this word of responsibility. For me, history has been a responsibility. We have a responsibility to understand as accurately as possible what happened in the past, and we have a responsibility to carry that forward with us into the present mm. and the future. Yeah, and, you know, it, it's interesting because I think now in particular you're seeing a lot of um, a lot of voices that are critical of re-examining our past. You know, take uh, Christopher Columbus as as kind of the uh, the lightning rod of uh, of the fourth quarter, as it were. Um, you know, every time Columbus Day rolls around, now we're having discussions about 
um, indigenous people and his impact on societies as, as well as his, his roots as an explorer because the, the stories that we were told about Christopher Columbus when we were young or when our parents were young are vastly different than what has since been uncovered due to historical research. So how do we grapple with the ever-changing nature of history when it comes to helping ourselves understand who we were and who we are? I think one of the revision, and we actually tackled this at the LePage Center when I was the founding director. Revision is essential uh, to, to history because we are always learning more about what happened in the past. We're always discovering new sources. We're always finding new voices. And so to take your example of Columbus, our understanding of Columbus has been revised over time. And it's, it's not like that's a new phenomenon. We did an event on Clubhouse in 2020 about Columbus Day, and we traced all the way back to 1792. There, Columbus has been appropriated and reappropriated and misappropriated in so many different contexts, you know, whether it be by Italian American immigrants who were looking to Americanize and wanted to hold up Columbus as sort of a example of how Italian Americans had contributed to American heritage to, as you say, indigenous groups who have protested the celebrations of Columbus and said, this man opened the floodgate for our genocides and this is not a person or a thing that we should celebrate. So History is this ongoing contestation and battlefield for interpretation, argument, new evidence, new voices, new perspectives. And that's why it's really difficult. That's why it's really hard. Um, and it's why we need to be having continual conversations about it. Mm. Um, but it, I, th- I do think it's important to sort of recognize that the contestation over Columbus is not a new phenomenon. And you were talking about sort of our parents' generation too. So for me, my parents' generation, baby boomers, you know, came of age in the 60s. Well, one of the leading voices in rethinking and revising our understanding of Columbus was Howard Zinn. And and he was publishing in the the 1960s, 1970s. And of course, People's History of the United States comes out in 1980, which has a whole chapter on the Arawaks and the the, clash of civilizations between Columbus and the indigenous populations here. So uh, even in our parents' generation, there were revisions about Columbus going on. Um, and we're just continuing those conversations today. Mm, yeah, that, that's interesting. It's kind of a, a constant through line that nobody realizes. Uh, you know, we, we look back to previous generations and we kind of sugarcoat it or put nostalgia around it or think things were fixed in a certain way. And uh, they really never are. Um you know, I'm reminded of a, a fantastic quote from Lewis Lapham from Lapham's Quarterly, uh, one of my favorite um, uh, subscriptions. They look at historical, artistic, and uh, literary records to offer context to um, kind of the more urgent issues that we're looking at today. And and Lapham, I don't remember in which issue he wrote it, but he wrote, the recorded past is a spiked cannon. The remembered past is live ammunition, not what happened 200 or 2,000 years ago, a story about what happened 200 or 2,000 years ago. The stories change with circumstance and the sight lines available to the tellers of the tale. Every generation rearranges the furniture of the past 
to suit the comfort and convenience of its anxious present. What do you, what do you make of that? It's a cool quote. Um, I wasn't familiar with it, so I got to go back and look that up. Thank you. I will, um, I will send it to you afterwards. You don't have to work so hard. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, I think this is one of the things I talk about in my book, um, how information about the past has been mobilized and in some cases weaponized online in order to advance particular agendas. And to the point of your quotation, that's not necessarily a new phenomenon. There's a great book by Margaret Macmillan, um, which of course I'm forgetting the name of at the moment, but I can tweet it out um, later, that goes into all the various ways in the 20th century that political leaders or other groups uh, appropriated or misappropriated information about the past to advance particular agendas. So, you know, I'm sort of continuing that tradition in some ways by looking about how it happens on the internet and the web. For me, part of the motivation for writing the book was a, to reinforce that point that was surfaced in your quotation about rearranging the furniture, but also B, because I feel like we have a responsibility as consumers of information online to be more savvy and be more literate about the information that we're receiving and understanding where it's coming from, why we're seeing certain pieces of information and why we're not seeing other pieces of information and what agendas are at work behind the scenes and what money and resources are at work behind the scenes, pushing certain information about the past in front of our eyes and keeping us from seeing others. And so I think that's, it's not only about this philosophical rumination about the past and how it gets reconfigured. It has very real world practical consequences for us in the moment and in the now. And it starts with media literacy, historical literacy, and being savvier consumers of information online, which can be applied to lots of disciplines. But for me, in this case, is being applied to historical information. Yeah, yeah. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Jason Steinhauer from the History Club newsletter and the author of History Disrupted, oh. How Social oh. Media and the World Wide Web Changed the Past. Um, Jason... It seems oh, like there's... I hope I didn't lose connection. Are you, can you hear me? I can hear you. Can you hear me? I'm still here. Jason? Jason, are you here? Yes. Excellent. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Sorry. Okay. I think I may have slipped on my microphone there. Um, <laughs> if you are just joining us, we're speaking with Jason Steinhauer the author of History Disrupted, How Social Media and the World Wide Web Changed the Past. He also writes the History Club newsletter on Substack. Check that out. Um, Jason, you, you raised a couple of issues there that I think are, are concerning. One, you talked about media literacy. And two, you talked about historical literacy. These are, these are two parallel things that, even by themselves, in some ways seem insurmountable, either because people are disinterested in history, um, people take the easy route when it comes to um, getting information on the web and don't do their research. They, they seem to like to uh, find things that align with their biases or their beliefs. How are we supposed to overcome one of these, let alone both of them at the same time? Yeah, certainly big challenges. I, I'm reminded of Václav Havel's 
quote about democracy, I think it was Václav Havel, who said that democracy is like a horizon. You know, you keep running towards it, you never reach it. And I think that's a fair analogy to apply to these challenges that we wrestle with, right? There's no, there's no like 100% certified media literate badge that we'll ever get. Uh, there's no 100% certified historical literate badge that we'll ever receive or put on our fridge. These are tools and skill sets that we need to constantly be refining. And I think we've realized over the past 15, 20 years with the rise of the social web and the incentive structures and other uh, consequences it has engendered, that if we don't continue to refine and hone these skills, uh, it could have potentially really nefarious consequences. And I've talked about this in History Club and in my newsletter, uh, but one of the tools in our toolkit is to is already exists, which is to take more college level and advanced level history courses. Uh, one of the reasons why we struggle with historical literacy in our current moment is because people are not taking college history classes anymore. Uh, enrollments in college history courses are declining and plummeting, and uh, it's not just here in the United States; it's in other countries around the world as well. And so if the last time you took a history course was in eighth grade or 10th grade, uh, yeah, you're not going to know a lot because those, <laughs> those classes are pretty rudimentary and they're designed to get you to pass an AP exam or some kind of standardized test or an SAT or something like that. So the real depth, the real meat comes when you engage with a professor or a subject matter expert, you know, in a course at a college level, at a graduate level, as a continuing student, as a lifelong learner in history club, in your newsletter, places like that. So uh, in terms of historical literacy, we have a lot of stuff out there. We just need to continue to advocate for people to take advantage of it and get people back into the history classrooms. And when it comes to media literacy, you know, I have lots of ideas about that, some of which are a bit controversial, which I actually talked about last night on Clubhouse and got a little pushback on. But I think there actually are some things we can do, and I think it starts with changing the incentive structures that are built into our current media and social media ecosystems. Talk a little bit more about that. All right. So my radical suggestion, which was not universally embraced yesterday on Clubhouse when I mentioned it, is uh, – so one of the reasons I wrote about one, – one of the reasons I wrote this book was because I wanted to shift the conversation from outcomes to incentives. So we talk a lot about outcomes when it comes to social media and media. We say, you know, which story got the most press, which tweet went viral, which piece of disinformation spread the furthest. And that's a question. That's a conversation about outcomes. I'm really interested in incentives. What incentives exist that allow these type of things to happen in the first place? And one of the most nefarious incentives, I think, which has just been damaging all around, is the incentive for virality, right? Clicks and shares and sending things virally through social networks, as using that as a means to acquire social capital and influence. I think it's been bad for journalism and reporters because it creates bad incentives for media publications. I think it's been bad for us as consumers because we get clickbait headlines and all kinds of sensational pieces which try to rile us up to click and share and, and distribute. It's also bad for us because we end up giving more data and more signals to these billion-dollar companies who are then just using it to refine algorithms to make us more addicted to their platforms. So my solution is don't share news articles on social media. Just don't do it. There's no reason to. 
If you want to support a journalist or you want to support a piece of writing, there are lots of other ways to do it. But to me, we have to sort of go cold turkey on this if we actually want to get our hands around the problem. So you'll notice on my social media, whatever social media it is, I do not share any news articles. It doesn't matter who they're written by. The only exception is if I wrote it because then I know that it's vetted. That's like, you know, if I'm like a vegetarian, like that's my little I'll eat fish sometimes. Um, but I think that's one of the key ways. And, you know, if you apply this to other problems we're trying to solve, like global climate change, for example, and you think, oh, this is a huge problem. We can't do anything about it. Well, one thing we can all do is turn off our lights so that we're not wasting energy or unplug our appliances so that we're not draining power from the system when we're not using it. This, to me, is the equivalent. It's a, it's a thing that we can all do right away that will help change the incentive structures in the social media ecosystem. Small movements. I, I like that. Um, I mean, we, we can't solve the problems of the world all at once. We can't devour the entire elephant. And there, there's that, uh, that great book, Bird by Bird. I don't know if you've heard of that, but um, I'm blanking on the author's name. But it was an instance when she witnessed her brother who had saved a research paper about birds until the night before it was due. And her brother went to their father and pled his case. And uh, his father said, look, you know, you, you got to do this. You, you, you have to uh, take the assignment and you have to put your mind to it. And the kid goes, well, how am I going to do it? And the father said, just take it bird by bird, right? You're not, you're not going to be able to devour the entire book in one sitting. Just take it bird by bird. Hey, Scott, can I also make an offer to everyone? Please. Because I want to thank everybody who's popped into this space and is sticking around to listen. So you and I both have cryptocurrencies on the rally network <clears throat> and um if anyone wants to tweet out about the book or about this conversation right now i'd be glad to send you some free crypto you would you would need to make a rally account um but if you want to do that or if you already have a rally account and you want to tweet out about this conversation if you're enjoying it or if you're interested in the book or i guess even if you're not enjoying it um, I'd be glad to send you a couple of Jason coin as a token of gratitude, a social token of gratitude at that. Just tag me in the tweet so that I know you sent it. Otherwise, you know, I can't find it. Fantastic. That's a very generous offer. And, um, if you're, you're participating in this space on the mobile app, if you take a look at one of the tweets I've pinned up there, it is uh, an offer from me as well for a free timeless coin for, uh, for our friends on rally. So. Feel free to take a look at that. So, Jason, I I love I I am a, I was a classics major as an undergrad. I'm a huge fan of history. Um, I love what you've said about encouraging more people to take history classes at the college level. What about what about people who don't go to college? You know, we, we look at uh, so many of the um, misinformed or uninformed people who are getting their news. Uh, and their information primarily from the internet. Uh, they tend to be undereducated in terms of uh, major political issues, things certainly like the coronavirus we've seen. I actually had a couple of links to Pew Research in my latest newsletter about that. How do you help people that maybe don't have a college education to become more interested and more educated about historical uh, moments of significance? Yeah, great question. So first of all, we obviously need to make college affordable. And we need to make sure everybody who wants to go can go. So that's point number one. 
And that goes without saying. And the inflation and cost of higher education is just ridiculous. As someone who worked in academia for four years and has spent his life uh, sort of adjacent to academia in various places, I can tell you there's so much about academia that is broken and needs repair. And the sort of inflation and the rising costs are in some ways a symptom of all the things that are that are broken. Uh, I would also say that I think sometimes people perhaps make the assumption that, you know, the best professors, the best academics, the best scholars, the best learning happens at places like Princeton or Harvard that have uh, ivory towers and vines growing on them. I would say that in my experience, uh, there's really not a lot of distinction between the amazing scholarship that happens at the Ivy Leagues and the amazing scholarship that happens at community colleges. In fact, we had an event in Philadelphia a couple of years ago where I thought the best speaker was from one of the community colleges in Philadelphia. He was brilliant and really had a lot of interesting things to say about the subject we were discussing. So I say that because while higher education may be inaccessible for people due to the inordinate costs that exist, there are opportunities out there at community colleges, uh, at two-year colleges, even online colleges. Arizona State University has a really robust online program, and they've actually partnered with the National World War II Museum in New Orleans, where I'm an advisor, to do uh, an online program on World War II history. So there's so much stuff out there. And I, again, I think one of the challenges we have is just separating the wheat from the chaff, which I hope this book will help people do uh, to sort of understand better what information is trustworthy and where to look for the best resources. Uh, this is one of the gifts, though, of, of the Internet, not necessarily Twitter and Facebook, but the Internet more broadly, is that there is so much material out there now that is rich and that is thoroughly researched that people can access even if they're not able for whatever reason or just not interested uh, for whatever reason in, you know, walking onto a, a campus of higher learning. Yeah. Uh, that's a, that's a great recommendation. Great series of recommendations there. I, um, I actually have a set of books uh, on the shelf uh, just adjacent to my desk here that I, I reference all the time. It's the uh, great books of the Western world. It, it's basically an encyclopedia set, if you will, of, um, you know, things like Shakespeare and Plato and Thomas Aquinas and, um, you know, all sorts of things from, from the arts to history to philosophy to the sciences. And, and what, what it was designed to do in the late forties, early fifties, when it was put together by the Chicago University Press was to give people an education in a box. And, and I actually acquired this from eBay and it came with the original paperwork the original envelope that all of the the study guides came in and it was in a it was addressed to a sergeant in the army uh stationed up in alaska and i'm just i'm trying to imagine this guy who wants to improve himself wants to educate himself he's he's lonely up there in the in the uh the six month uh darkness uh reading great books of the western world so uh there, there's great opportunities uh all around us to educate ourselves if we want to be lifelong learners. And by the way, shout out to Scott Caldwell, who just tweeted about this conversation. I retweeted it. So Scott, if you're listening, happy to send you some Jason coin on rally. If you want to sign up for rally or if you're on rally already, but we can DM about that. Fantastic. But thanks Scott. Appreciate you listening. That's great. Thank you, Scott.
We have uh, Stuart Turnbull, who is going to join us up here on the stage. Stuart, welcome to Timeless Leadership. Hi, Scott. Hi, Jason. Thanks. It's interesting. I'm just, um, I've, I've called up uh, your, your book, Jason, just having a little look at the, the abstracts on the chapters. It uh, looks um, like that's going to be an interesting read. I'll uh, <laughs> need to put that on my list of things to uh, download and read recently in, in, in the near future. I, I was just saying some of the things you were saying about um, about the way hist- history is now um, collated, and everybody thinks they're their own historian. Uh, and actually, it, it's not necessarily just enough to know about something, but you also need the context. Uh, and that's what good history does, doesn't it? It gives us the context. So it's it's not just the the allies won world war Two, but what what was the context of that what things helped to win and and i use world war Two because of course growing up it, it was one of the major events of the 20th century and it dominated history um certainly at school but but then you the the idea that um the history is collated in a certain way also becomes negative because in Britain, um, I mean, Britain has a, a British rosy, rosy glow view of the British Empire um, in much the way that America has a, a, a rosy glow view of America's you know, history. And although you get the high points, it tends to either completely avoid or, or skip over crucial, crucial points that that. Um, portray things in a less favorable light and uh, it's just interesting the the idea of everybody being their own historian um despite the fact that as you were saying fewer people are actually putting in the legwork to learn how to learn about history or how to pass history it is quite an interesting thought yeah, uh, thank you for that, Stuart. So, Jason, what do you say to that, to, to Stuart's uh, discussion about armchair historians and this kind of whitewashed view of history that we arrive at so frequently? Yeah, I thought there's some great stuff in there. I mean, th- these could all be potential conversations uh, for a history club or for a future chat. So there's a lot in there that's good. I think one thing that is being alluded to, which again, we've talked about in history club quite a bit is the correlation between history and nationalism, right? And how history becomes put into service of narratives about national greatness and reinforces the nation state. And in fact, the professional discipline of history coming, you know, into its, um, into its sort of codification as a, as a discipline, as a field happens in the, in the 19th century and sort of in parallel with the rise of nationalism. And that's not a coincidence. Um, history in the past is oftentimes what is used to hold a nation together. And we can think about the United States or the UK or in, in the case of uh, 1947 and 1948 in India, you know, there's a whole new history that gets written in order to sort of underpin uh, the idea of an Indian nation state where there hadn't been one before. So history and nationalism are inter- intimately connected. And there have been many, many wonderful historians and scholars who've written about this. And what's been interesting over the past generation or so is that there's been a lot of 
historians and, and other scholars who have tried to disentangle those two things and, and sort of undermine some of this nationalistic fervor because to get back to the example of World War II, we've seen what happens when nationalism goes off the rails. And so uh, there have been scholars and historians who've been trying to unwind the nation state and move away from some of these you know, militant proto-nationalistic ideologies. But the problem is they're very, very stubborn and they're very, very hard to get rid of. And if you don't have something to replace it with, then the alternative could be worse. And so Jill Lepore has actually written a, a really good book about this where she tries to sort of, you know, undermine nationalism while reinforcing patriotism and making the distinction between the two. Uh, but it's incredibly tricky and it's incredibly delicate. And there's so much wrapped up in it when it comes to identity and national pride and statehood and um, history is all wrapped up in that. So I think that's a that's another thread probably for another time. That's also why, though, people have such fierce and strong connections to what they consider to be their history or their heritage, which are two terms that mean different things but are oftentimes used you know, interchangeably. Uh, it's because it's so wrapped up in these ideas of national greatness, national identity, ethnic identity, uh, differentiation between one group and another. And again, we only have to look back to the 20th century and even, you know, right, right now in the 21st century to see where that, where those dangers lie and where that can be very perilous. Yet it still remains a very powerful animator of human action and interaction. Yeah. And it doesn't help, does it, that the media continues to portray, um, sides as if you are at a sporting event. And, and you've chosen size and you've got your team and you dig in and, and one team wins and the other team loses. Well, in, in a liberal democracy, you hope that everyone is being pulled along, all of society, not just one faction over another. Um, and, and, and that I think gets conflated with wars. You know, you're, you're cheering for the good guys versus the bad guys. And whether you view yourself as the good guy or the bad guy depends on, uh, again, on your perspective. And all of this stuff is being conflated. By the way, we just got an awesome tweet from Bob DePasquale. I hope I'm saying that right, Bob DePasquale. So thank you, Bob. Love to send you some Jason coin if you're on Rally or if you want to sign up for it. Uh, and I got to keep track of all the people I need to send Jason coin to. So... Oh, and Stuart just tweeted as well. Awesome. This is great. Fantastic. So, more Jason coin being sent out. I have to get your rally IDs from you all so that I can do this. I don't have Bonfire yet. Scott's got all the stuff tricked out. He's totally ahead of the game. <laughs> I am totally behind the game. So <laughs> I still well, I still need to get some stuff sorted. So I have to do this manually. So as, I will do true, it after we finish. <laughs> as a true historian, Jason, you're living in the past, right? No. Um, you're, you're getting there. You're getting there. This is great. Um, I feel like there's a big Lebowski reference there. Yeah, somewhere, <laughs> somewhere. I need to refresh myself on that one. Well, if you are just joining us, we're here with Jason Steinhauer, uh, who writes the History Club newsletter and has written the book, History Disrupted, How Social Media and the World Wide Web Change the Past. Next up on the stage, we have the Manic Pixie Weirdo Podcast. That's a mouthful. Hey, welcome to Timeless Leadership. Hi, thank you so much for letting me speak. Um, so you mentioned something about the great books of the Western world. I'm currently working my way through the great books of the Western world. But what I found is I would like to know if there's 
a similar list that has been compiled um, for great books of the Eastern world. Um, is there any list that anybody knows about? That's, that is a great suggestion. And I know there was, um, there was a journalist who, gosh, maybe about 20 years ago, uh, audited a, a course on, uh, it was either on Western civilization or great books of the Western world at Columbia University. And they were having discussions about what some of the other books that ought to be included in the canon of great books were. And some of them were, uh, were from Africa, were from Asia, India, etc., taking into account, um, a lot of different cultures that we ought to be aware of, particularly in this global time. And I, I'm going to root around while I let Jason talk a little bit and see if I can find the title of that book because it might provide you uh, with a little bit of insight as to what some of those books uh, were recommended. I don't have a list myself, but I can certainly get you uh, the title of that book. What do you think, Jason? I can recommend authors, um, and I think if I recommend a few authors, that will lead you to some really good books. Um, the first author I would recommend is a scholar named Toyin Falola, T-O-Y-N-F-A-L-O-L-A. So Toyin Falola is a Nigerian historian. He is a very accomplished uh, scholar of African studies. He, I think he's currently at the University of Austin, uh, from Nigeria originally. Um, and he is um, considered by many Africanists and African historians to be sort of one of the, the top guys out there. Uh, so I think if you engage with some of Toyin Falola's scholarship, uh, you will not be disappointed and it will give you very interesting insight into certainly Nigerian history, but also, you know, certain other areas of West Africa, Central Africa that, that he covers. Uh, the next recommendation I can make, and uh, I just want to make sure I'm um, spelling the names right, which is why I'm also putting them into Google real quick, is uh, Ramla Thapar. So Ramla Thapar, R-O-M-I-L-A-T-H-A-P-A-R. She is an Indian historian, and she has done so much work over her long and distinguished career on Indian nationalism and the formation of the Indian state, particularly, you know, in, in the 1940s, 1950s. And she's also done stuff on ancient India. I mean, she's just, she's a legend in her own right and a power, a powerhouse. Uh, and again, if you're looking for an introduction into that region of the world, South Asian history, she's a great place to start. And the last one, which I know I'm going to not get the name exactly right, which I apologize for, is Yi Yin Shi, uh, who is a Chinese historian. Again, brilliant. I believe he's at Princeton, um, but I might be mistaken about that. Uh, he's Chinese-born, of course, but yes, he is at Princeton, according to the website I just found. Uh, does a lot of stuff on Chinese history and Chinese philosophy. Also does stuff on Chinese nationalism and the Communist Party. So uh, I would start with those. And what's great about all scholarship is the footnotes can point you in any number of directions from there. So read their books and then look at the notes section to see what scholars they're citing and what 
books they've relied on, and that will open up a whole universe of other things you can study. Thank you so much. That's fantastic. Thank you for that, Jason. And thank you, um, I want to make sure I get this right, Manic Pixie Weirdo Podcast. (laughs) Um, that, that is the best handle ever. Uh, and thank, thank you for that great question for bringing additional voices to, uh, the microphone of history. Jason, I've got a request from, uh, one of our listeners from, from Rose who uh, wants to know if you could share links to, uh, some of these historians that you've just mentioned. I tweeted one out, um, as a, as an addendum to one of the threads I had. Uh, I, I did the Ramala Thapar, but I didn't catch the other two quickly enough. If you wouldn't mind uh, tweeting links out to those individuals, that would uh, that would be really helpful. Well, this this assumes that I'm smart enough to tweet and talk at the same time. So, <laughs> well, I'll tell you, uh, <laughs> I'll tell you what. If somebody else wants to come up to the microphone and relieve Jason of the uh, the need to speak for just a few seconds, um, I, I can certainly do my patter up here. Um, and, and I'll tell you what, um, Magic Pixie, uh, while, while you're still up here, uh, as a speaker on the stage, um, I, I want to get your feedback. How, how did you find, uh, the great books of the Western world? What was your, what was your path to them? Um, my path was actually, I found a college, a very small liberal arts college in, uh, uh they have two campuses in New Mexico. And in Maryland, uh, it's called St. John's College, and that is their syllabus, is the entire great books of the Western world. So everybody reads the exact same list. You can get it online for free at stjohnscollege.com. Um, I believe that's the website. I can find it and post it in the, in the nest if need be. But you can get the full comprehensive list of the great books of the Western world. And I actually couldn't afford to go to St. John's College. Um, so I ended up just printing out the list and started working my way through it on my own. Um, so, yeah. That is fantastic. That's fantastic. So um, I found the, the book that I was uh, referring to. It's, it's by David Denby, and it's simply called Great Books. Um, and uh, just one of the, uh, the summaries here says, 30 years of saturation in the new media age left a bright mind and talent feeling as though he possessed opinions without principles and instincts without beliefs. He needed to be re-educated and did it by returning to the classics after an adulthood away from them. His year of study, which he shares with us in this captivating intellectual exercise, leaves him and the reader reinvigorated, re-inspired, and restored to the life of the mind. So... Take that, take that recommendation with a grain of salt, but that's, uh, that's, uh, great books by David Denby. And I do have those other, uh, those other historians that Jason mentioned as well. I will be adding those not only to the, uh, the, the, uh, thread of tweets. I'll also add them in the show notes to the Timeless Leadership podcast when this episode is produced. It looks like Rose, who actually requested those names, has requested the microphone as well. Rose, if you're still willing, welcome to Timeless Leadership. Hi. Uh, I just want to say hello, and I, I find the discussion really interesting. Uh, I fortunately in college did take a, a, an honors, you know, a curriculum in the history of the you know, Western world. Uh, we started with the Bible and Plato and Aristotle and uh, worked our way up to... Uh, 
Nietzsche and I guess maybe we stopped around the 20th century. Uh, I guess, though, as I've, you know, gotten older, I would love to see the kinds of things that uh, Pixie was talking about, about, um, and I'm sure they're out there, and, and thank you for listening to my request uh, of Eastern uh, philosophies and history. But, uh, you know, as well, uh, I'd love to see a space like uh, this room and leadership uh, about women. Uh, I uh, founded a hashtag called Women to Follow, uh, which aims to amplify women's voices on social media. Uh, and I think it's great, you know, to have a uh, history of the Western world, but, uh, you know, like to see uh, more histories of, of other cultures. Thank you for that. Um, as, as a matter of fact, one of the people I have on my uh, list of potential interviewees is uh, Melanie Kirkpatrick, who wrote mm-hmm. uh, the biography uh, Lady Editor about uh, Sarah Josepha Hale and the making of the modern American women. Mm-hmm. So hopefully we can get her on here to, to join okay. us as well. So I, it's a Thank great you. recommendation, and I, I stand behind it 100%. And if I can't get Melanie, then I'll find someone else uh, who can talk specifically about uh, the women's role in leadership, because I think it's so important that we get that out there. I agree. Thank you. Thank you. Follow me on my Twitter handle. Uh, I'm always um, – uh, I have a list, uh, a Twitter list of women to follow, uh, and they range, you know, from scientists to historians to social media pros. So uh, – and my first guest on my show, which I did as a stream, was Kristen uh, Excellent. Well, I will certainly check that list out, and I encourage all of our listeners to to check out uh, Rose Horowitz as well. It's Rose Horowitz thirty one on Twitter. Thank you, Rose. Oh, Scott, Rose, real quick. Um, Rose may be aware of these, but maybe other listeners are not. So, first of all, uh, great point. Second of all. Uh, there is a National Women's History Museum that is in the making, in the planning. Uh, there have been meetings over the past several years among uh, historians and philanthropists and others in government to plan and start to scope out what this would look like. And they do have a website. It's uh, womenshistory.org. So if people are interested in following that and being involved with it, I would recommend checking out their website and also keeping an eye out for events that they're doing and opportunities for people to chime in with ideas. Uh, I don't exactly know the timeline for the project, uh, but I've been hearing a lot about it, and I think it's probably on its way. The other thing is that there's actually a website called Women Also Know History. This was started a few years ago by some women historians who felt like, you know, their voices weren't being heard enough. They weren't getting the same media mentions as male historians or they weren't getting the same opportunities or invites to uh, Twitter spaces wasn't around then, of course, but to podcasts and other radio shows. So there's actually uh, a website called women also know history.com. And you can actually search thousands of uh, women scholars in, across a wide range of areas and expertises. You can search by name, you can search by area specialty. It's a great resource. And if you do have a podcast or a show that you want to invite women scholars on, I would just go to this list and work your way through it because you literally have like a thousand shows here that you could plan. That is fantastic. Well, I, um, 
I concur with you, Jason, on uh, the women historians. There's there's a show I listen to regularly called Now and Then. It's on the uh, the Vox Media Podcast Network. You probably know it. It's with Heather Cox Richardson and Joanne Freeman. They do a wonderful job talking about American history and current events. Um, it, I'm I'm going to make no secret of it. I would love to have either of them on the show. Uh, so we'll do our best to try and seek them out. I've also approached Dor- Doris Kearns Goodwin. Uh, a, a historian of national and international note, um, because I do love uh, the work that she's done on Lincoln and LBJ and FDR and uh, Teddy Roosevelt. And also uh, Lindsay Chervinsky, who is a presidential historian. She wrote uh, the book The Cabinet uh, by Harvard Press. Uh, so she's another one I've got my eyes on. So plenty of female voices to bring up to the microphone to talk about leadership and, and history and whatnot. So... Um, now that we, uh, we're at the top of the hour here, Jason, I don't want to keep you too much longer, but any other bits of wisdom that you'd like to leave us with before you go? I don't know how much wisdom I have or don't have. I will say that this book took me five and a half years to write. And at one point it was 80,000 words and the finished version is going to be 50,000 give or take. So uh, at various stages, I had a lot more in the book than actually wound up being in the finished version. And invariably, when you're writing about the web and the internet, where things are changing so quickly, and it just sprawls in so many different directions, it's tough to make selections and kind of put your hands around it and feel like you've got a good grasp of it. So I say all that just to uh, reiterate that this, I hope, is a stepping stone in advancing the conversation. It's not the end of the conversation by all means. And it's not as if I have all of the answers. I just am trying to raise some of the questions and get some of the things that I have found out there for public discussion. Because as I said earlier, I think I said it earlier, maybe I didn't. Um, we have spent a lot of time talking about how social media and the web have affected our politics, affected our journalism and our news industry, uh, affected our health and our science and dating and all these other things. But no one had really written a book about how the web had a, has affected and changed our understanding of the past. And so I felt like that was an important part of the puzzle to be addressed. And I've tried to do that here. Uh, with this book, but there's so much more that's not in the book that we should be talking about. So whether it's here on Twitter Spaces or on Clubhouse or doing events or podcasts, I hope we can continue this conversation and become a little bit more historically literate, media literate, critical thinking about the histories we're encountering online and and why we're encountering them. The other thing I'll just add quickly is that the, at the end of the book, I kind of talk about how we build different incentives incentives into the next iteration of the web. And this is something I'm also really keen to talk about and particularly have interdisciplinary conversations about because we kind of stumbled into the web 2.0 that we currently have with some really bad incentives, as I said earlier, when it comes to clicks and shares and views and virality and misinformation and disinformation. So now that Web3 is here with crypto and NFTs and blockchain and metaverse and everything else, we have an opportunity much earlier on to build in better incentives and be much more thoughtful about 
how we design these systems. And I worry that we're not learning from history to take the theme of this podcast and, and doing that. So we need more scholars and historians and tech people and uh, everybody in this space to be in conversation with each other and think through this with a little more thoroughness than we did 20 years ago when we launched Web 2.0. That's a great reminder, Jason. Even our current or, or uh, most recent history is as important to understand as uh, the long ago forgotten history. The, these are the ways that we uh, avoid making the same mistakes or similar mistakes over and over again. Well, Jason Steinhauer, author of History Disrupted, How Social Media and the World Wide Web Changed the Past. Thank you so much for joining us here on Timeless Leadership. Thank you, my friend, for the invitation, and thanks to Twitter Spaces for giving us the platform to do this on, and thanks to everyone who popped in and said hi and asked questions and tweeted, and for those of you who I owe Jason Coin to, I will send you a message to get your rally ID. History forms a straight line from the past to the future, going right through the present. That's why knowing history is essential. It helps us understand who we were and who we want to become. It's part of our continued growth. Thank you for joining us and for being an advocate of timeless and principled leadership, whenever and wherever you find it. I'm Scott Monty. Until next time, may you dream more, learn more, do more, and become more for you are a leader.